Would you turn your Bibles to John chapter 6? Looks like we're going backwards today, right? John chapter 6. I'm going to read here in verse 1 through uh, verse 15. So follow with me as I read John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd follow, following him because they saw the signs that he was doing in the sick. And Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from far five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who's come into the world. Take note here in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. This is the, the passage, the story as John relays it, of the feeding of the 5,000. We covered this well over a year ago. Amazing story of God's faithfulness and Jesus exhibiting, showing his, his faithfulness to the people and providing for them. An amazing showcase of Jesus' power. But why did Jesus withdraw there in verse 15? Why didn't he embrace the excitement from the crowd? You know, maybe it was because it was a misplaced enthusiasm. Maybe they, they, they wanted Jesus for a different reason. Maybe they saw the power that Jesus had and they wanted that instead of him. And Jesus in this passage in John 6 resisted the allure of a kingdom because Jesus realized that there's no kingdom without a cross. Jesus didn't come into the world to, to give men and women bread. He, he came to be bread. And we come now to John 18, and Jesus is again asked about a kingdom. And again, the question concerning Jesus' kingdom is misguided. At the end of John 18, Pilate has no idea who he's talking to. He thinks this guy is just a rebel, and he is. He doesn't realize that God stands in his midst, though. And he questions Jesus. And it really comes down in this passage this morning uh, between truth and power. So look with me in John 18 as we read John, uh, the verses 28 through the end of the chapter. This is continuing the trial before Pilate and John writes, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, 
what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to them by show, uh, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Would you join me in prayer? God, we ask this morning that you would teach us. God, we ask that you would guide us to understand your word as we look at these two pillars in this passage, power and truth. May you convict us and cause us to learn and to grow for your honor and for your glory. For we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen. As you might have guessed, I want to focus on those two themes here in this passage. There's a lot in here, and so I chose to, to just really focus on those two verses that talk about power and truth, verses 33 and verse 38. Both are questions from Pilate to Jesus. Both, both communicate to us a, a worldview that is very much prominent today, power and truth. These, these are things that every living human are looking for, power and truth. And one thing that is very prominent in this passage for, for you as a careful Bible student is that God is completely in control and yet you're completely responsible for your, your behavior and how you act and what you do. God doesn't excuse be, our behavior because he's sovereign. And so realize today, friends, everything that happens, every choice you make today, tomorrow, a year from today is part of his plan and yet you're responsible for your choice. This is Pilate. I'm sure he thought he was in complete control. I'm, I'm sure he thought that he had everything figured out, but he really doesn't. And Jesus is, is, is sharing with him that he's responsible for his decisions. This is Jesus confronting the worldview of Pilate and so doing, really exposing for us the current cultural trend here in our country today. Power and truth. What do we believe in regards to power and truth? What do you believe? What do you seek more, power or truth? We're gonna jump into that here in our moments this morning. First is power. Look at verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Pilate is most definitely not asking a theological question here, friends. He is not interested if Jesus is actually the Messiah as prophesied in the Old Testament. He could care less. Instead, he's asking, are you a political leader? 
Are you leading a movement who is trying to undermine the Roman power? He wants to understand Jesus' political clout. Jesus, do you have political power? And political power is the power to make people do things. If you pass laws and then enforce those laws, you can make people try to behave under those laws. You know, you notice that Jesus really doesn't answer the question. He's ambiguous. Verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Verse 37, that Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of truth listens to my voice. He's deliberately ambiguous. And he knows that his answer to the question from Pilate is so much deeper than Pilate can understand at this point. In fact, Pilate is asking the wrong question. And on one hand, he's, he's saying, I'm not a political power because if I was, then my servants would fight. And he's not just talking about physical power, but a, but a political power. He's including both. And when Peter drew his sword earlier to cut off the servant's ear, he, he scolded by Jesus, right? My kingdom is not going to be established by that kind of power. The power of physical aggression or political power. And Jesus is teaching us a clear lesson for us as believers in 2017. He doesn't forbid Christians to take public office or to find political careers, but he's clear throughout the Gospels that this is not the, the primary way that God's program, God's church will be established. We shouldn't war in Christ's name and shouldn't run for office in Christ's name. His way is always against the political and physical power. He chooses humility. He chooses to pay for sins. Think about that, what happens when Christians begin to think the only way that church will grow is through political power. You know, Christianity is growing in Asia, in Latin America, and Africa. In North America, it's just kind of in a holding pattern. But there's one continent where Christianity is actually retreating. Or churches, lots of them, gorgeous churches, are empty. Essentially, they're, they're opened up for, for tours for people. You can tour the church on a weekday. Where people have turned away from any semblance of the Christian church, the Christian gospel. This is Europe. And this is the only continent where they already tried the experiment for a thousand years called Christendom. They, they tried this. In Christendom, they were doing the exact opposite of what Christ has and, and John 18, they had state churches. These churches were supported by the power of the sword, by taxes, by laws. And these churches dictated the power of the country. You know, these countries required you to be a Christian. You had to live and obey, as they said. And the political power was behind it. And the result... Millions of people were then alienated and, and the church then eventually lost all of its power. And now they sit empty. Generation after generation produced nominal Christians who had to go to church to get power, had to go to church to get prestige, influence. I've seen it with my own eyes. Multiple countries throughout Europe, 
You know, in Sweden, when we were there, we were surrounded by many that called themselves Lutheran atheists. <laughs> Wrap your mind around that, friends. They're church members, but they don't believe in God. It's a state church. And do we want this in America? You know, are we going to stand behind a political power hoping that the country will be changed through their policies and through politicians? Now understand that this is not the program of God, but this is man's program. Friends, the church has always done better on the margins because it's, it's, it isn't founded on the power of government. It's founded on a person who, who took no power. To the contrary, it was founded by a person who gave up his power. And so as a result, Christianity doesn't do, it doesn't do very well at all when it gets in bed with power. And Jesus is saying to Pilate, no, I'm not a political leader. And I do not want people going to war in my name. I do not want them to ascend to a political office in my name. He's come to bear witness to the truth. Jesus came to change the way people actually live in the world. He, he, he came to earth not just to make you feel all warm and fuzzy. He didn't come so that we could have Christmas and Easter as holidays to celebrate although we do, and for right reasons. He didn't come so we could just have a story to share with our kids. He came to change the way that people live on planet Earth. And before we can change the way we live, we need our hearts changed. And Jesus says, I've come to bear witness to the truth. Laws don't change society. Truth does. But it seems as a country, we cannot understand this, and we keep diving back into the pit to try to persuade people through political power. Laws can be passed, and they're good and health, healthy and helpful for the cause of the gospel. But until hearts are changed, it won't change anything. The minds of people have to be changed, and, and that only happens as a result of God's work in the world. And so we should pray for our leaders, most definitely. And we should encourage Christians that want to go into political office, most definitely. And we pray into that end that, that God would be glorified in their work. That God would receive glory through what they do. We don't separate ourselves from, from the political process. We just don't place our hope there. Worldview has to change. The understanding of truth has to change. And when those things happen, the laws that come to bring those changes will have a lasting effect. But we need to realize, friends, that in, in that self, in the, in the laws in themselves, it doesn't change people. God changes people. Laws can't change society. It's the truth that changes society. It's the truth that changes people. It's not power. And Jesus is saying that he came into the world not as a political mover, but he comes to reveal the truth. And when people understand the truth, their lives will forever change. And the power comes through the influence rather than the sword. Power is like a bar of soap. The more you use it, the less you have. If we look at the early Christians, they, define, they definitely looked more conservative in the culture in which they, they lived, especially when it came to situations of sex and family. The early Christian community was one of the first groups in the world to decide that abortion was wrong. In those days, Roman parents could kill their children if they wanted to. They had a girl and they wanted a boy, they could end that life. It was their right. 
horrific problems in that culture. And most of the abortions were female babies because they believed that they were not economically valuable to the family. Historians say that female abortions was so widespread, they say there was around 140 males for every 100 females in the Roman Empire. And the Christian church said, no. No, we're not doing that. They also said no to, to having sex outside of marriage. You know, in the pagan world, wives couldn't have affairs, but, but husbands could. And the church stepped up and said, no. That's not going to happen. No double standard, no sex outside of marriage, no abortion. That's not going to happen. And guess what happened? Inside of the church, families flourished and they grew. And women would flock to the church because they realized that they were finally safe. And yet at the same time, the early church was much more liberal than the outside culture. And you might say, how is that possible? Well, because the gospel changed their hearts and it changed their lives and they related to one another much differently. They believed the gospel was the great equalizer so everyone was equal at the foot of the cross. The ground is level there. We're all saved as sinners by grace. And so it affected the, the church. And Christians combined with people, mixed classes of people, mixed races of people. And they would join together and worship together. And the world thought this is too liberal. Middle class with upper class, both sacrificially giving together in the church. The early church was a mixture of races. There wasn't just one color in their worship services. The church was more liberal than the outside because they believed the gospel and that it changes lives and not the world, not our status. And, and what Christianity brought was, was simply a spiritual movement, but not just that, a, a whole new culture, a, a counterculture, a completely new way to live, a, a new way to exist as human society. No, no laws were changed by the church. Instead, the church culture looked more attractive than the dominant culture in which people lived. You know, a lot of people may say, oh, the Emperor, Emperor Constantine around AD 300 came along and started to be supportive of Christianity and put Christians in power, and that's, that's not exactly true. Christianity was already overwhelming the empire, not in numbers, though. Christianity was, was still very much a minority. No, most Romans were not Christians, but they continued to adopt the Christian way of life, the Christian approach to relationships, to the poor, to sex, and to family. Why? Because Jesus bore witness to the truth, and the early church followed this lead and bore witness to the truth. People had to have their minds and their worldviews changed, not because of political power, but because of truth. Political power is always downstream of that kind of power, you know, kind of change. Political change happens after a worldview change, a, a thought changes in how we approach it and think about it. So Jesus is, is not saying to have nothing to do with political power, but he's saying this isn't the way to go. This is not how change happens. So what do we do with the struggle that we have as humans to, to want power? Well, that leads to the second point about truth. And at the end of the first interrogation of Jesus, he says here in the passage, you say that I'm a king. 
For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my, <clears throat> my voice. And then verse 38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? You realize Pilate doesn't stay for an answer. He leaves. What is he saying here? Truth. What does it have to do with power? You know, Pilate is, is saying, I don't care about truth. I don't, I don't care about theology. All I care about is whether you are a threat to my power or not. Are you a threat to Rome? And this shows the problem lurking inside of every one of our hearts when we're placed with power. I came across in my study this week of an amazing speech that was given in 1991 by Vaclav Havel, who was then the president of Czechoslovakia. You can find it online. It's, in fact, I would encourage you strongly to do that. It takes about 20 minutes to read the speech. I'll post the link later today. Um, you can Google it, Havel, titled The Temptations of Political Power. And it's an acceptance speech that he gave. And I'm gonna do my best here to paraphrase what, what he says. Quote, everybody who seeks political office, everybody who seeks governing office has two motivations in the heart. The one motivation is I want to use power in the service of truth. I want power so I can serve truth and other people. Because you go into political office, you think, I can think of ways to organize society better than it's organized now, and I want to implement my ideas. The other motivation is you don't want power just to serve truth. You also want power as an end in itself. You want power to fill the deep need every human heart has for self-affirmation. He says some amazing things in this speech, completely astounding. He, he talks about himself. He essentially says this. He says, quote, every human being has an inner longing for self-affirmation. Every human being has a need to prove you mean something and therefore you exist. Nothing does that better than political office. Political office is the way to affirm to the world and to yourself through the gaining of power and of that power's reach, you have an undeniable identity. It's a guarantee you exist in a truly valid and significant way. If, if we're to sum it up, he is saying that when you seek political office, you have both these motives in your heart. You want, you want power as a means to an end to serve others and the truth, but you also want power as an end in itself to fill the need that you have to convince yourself that you really are a significant person. And he says that almost everyone that is seeking a political office, only to admit the first part and convince everyone else that this is the only true motive, they won't even admit the second one is a motive. And they don't even realize that the second one is a motive. So what happens is you hold on to power, whether you're getting anything done in office or not. Can you relate to that? Have you seen that in our politics? You hold on to power whether things are progressing. You hold on to power whether people believe your ideals or work or not. You, you need power. You, you grab tight to the power. It serves you as an end in itself. Why? Because there's an, any, there's an inner emptiness is what he's saying. You need honor. You need glory. You need to hold on to the power no matter what. This is why people ascend to higher role after higher role after higher role, unwilling to go backwards because it's an affront to their character. They need that power. And Havel says that it's 
It is certain that the second motive will overtake the first unless you're, you're very aware and vigilant for it, and almost no politician is. This is why power is abused. He says there's something treacherous, elusive, and ambiguous in the temptation to power. Politics, therefore, ought to be carried out on by people who are vigilant, sensitive to ambiguous promise of self-affirmation that comes with it. And what he's saying in all of this that I gather is that every human being is empty inside and needs someone, something to come along and fill it with significance and honor and glory. And if you have this emptiness and you get near power, you will try to fill that vacuum with power. This is why power is abused in politics. I heard a sermon a few weeks ago where the preacher was opening up Galatians 6 and he was talking about how Paul says, don't be, he's writing to the church, don't be conceited, stop exploiting each other. And the word conceited literally is a word that means don't be so empty of glory. Your older versions say vain glory, which means empty of glory, empty of worth. There's a vacuum inside, a hole. And you exploit others and you try to get power to fill that hole. And that power can come from many different places. It can be a position that you hold which comes with some natural authority. It can be an influence that you have over a situation or people because of your background, because of your education or your experience. Those are easy to spot in conversations because those are people that are quick to give the resume and why they're qualified for that position. Or this power can be because of money. You have it, they don't. So you can use it in that way to gain power over a situation. How did that work for Judas? Not very well. Money might have influenced him, but he wasn't happier because of it. And we're all born with this hole inside of ourselves, and if we're not aware of it, we will fill it with things other than God. Have you ever seen parents, observed parents, trying really hard to teach their little kids to behave? And it's hard when they're growing up. Man, we're in the thick of it. They're five, six, seven years old, and you're trying to get them to understand. It's trying to get them to tell the truth trying to get them to, uh, to not tattle on one another, to, to share their toys, you know, just basic things. And, and you're trying and trying and trying, and it just seems like it's a losing battle. Then all of a sudden, one of your kids just does it right. They get it in that moment, and they shock you. And they do exactly what you've been instructing them to do for months. And you can watch, if you're there, if you're observant, the parents just fill with joy. Wow. And, you know, and then they, they, they pour that out usually. That's my, thank you. you. You obey, thank you for doing that. And this joy kind of pours out. And, and when the child sees that, what do they naturally do? They, they run to their parents in delight and they jump in their arms and you know, this celebration happens over obedience, over whatever issue. And there's not, really nothing more satisfying than seeing the delight in the face of a, a mother or father when the child obeys and, and sees that. And the Bible says that we're, we were built to get that from God. Every one of you seated here this morning was built 
to get that from God. That affirmation that when you're obedient, he finds joy in that. You were made to be sons and daughters. Now listen, this is the point here. You're made to hear these words. And we strive to hear these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. You're living for that, whether you know it or not. And if you're not getting it, then you're, you're searching for it in other ways. And maybe it's through power. You want power and you want to be filled with power. And, and it will become a means to that end. And so you, you strive after that. We're all made for this. We're all made to live in that way. To, to look forward to that moment when, when God says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And if we continue on the path of searching away from that joy from God, but filling it with power, things will go poorly. What will change that? What, what will transfer power into a, a tool that you actually give away to empower others a tool you use to serve others instead of a, a suit of armor you put on to convince yourself and everybody else that you're significant? How do we transform power? It's through truth. It's through preaching truth and sharing truth. Truth frees us to serve others. You know, Jesus' words to Pilate that day were an invitation to hear and believe the truth of Jesus. It was an invitation for Pilate to, to understand who Christ is, who he is and why he came. And like so many skeptics, including the postmodernists now, Pilate rejected the idea of finding an, an absolute truth. And this is the tragic downfall of every human on planet Earth that hasn't bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. They are rejecting truth. The man that, that Pilate examined that day was in fact a king. But he was a much different king than what Pilate expected. You know, at the end of the first interrogation, Jesus said, the reason I've come into this world is to bear witness for the truth. Right, but how is he going to do it? Is it, is it just being a teacher? We know better than that. At the end of the second interrogation, if you go into chapter 19, and look at verse 10, Pilate says, I have the power or authority to crucify you. And what does Jesus say in response? You only have that power because that's the plan. That's how I'm going to bear witness to this truth. You only have the power because God gave it to you. Friends, do you, do you want to know the Father, the Lord, utterly delights in you? 
Because when you see Jesus Christ not coming to take power and to take glory, but to empty himself of his glory, to empty himself of power, to die on the cross for you, there, there and only there will you actually have the absolute assurance of his delight in you. And when that, when that gets into your heart and to the degree that it fills your heart, to the degree that it's now safe for you to go and serve in a position of authority, it's amazing. You know, Christianity is not trying to say we don't want Christians to be in politics. Of course not. Christians should, should never give up and say, I'm a Christian, therefore I should avoid any public office. And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's teaching us not to use power to bring a spiritual change. That's a great way to destroy Christianity in your country. But what I want you to do is, is I want people to now have their hearts filled to, to now move out, of, out into a political office and start to give away power the way that I did. Use power instead of putting it on. Now it's safe to, to use it, so do your best to make this a good place to live. Preach the truth. And not only that, every, every person, whether you're in political office or not, who has a, a heart filled with the knowledge of what Christ has done, if you're no longer as selfish in sexuality but faithful, if you're no longer selfish with your money but you're generous, you're going to be out there changing the world through your witness of the truth. You're going to preach the truth. And, and you know what I find amazing in all of this? And, and we'll get into it, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks this assurance that, that Jesus is giving us in this whole, this whole scene. You know, Pilate says there in chapter 19, he basically says, I am Rome. I have power. And I could crush you like a bug. And do you know what Jesus says? This is all part of the plan. If you abuse your power, you're going to, to bring your own house down. So go ahead. You will destroy me, and all you'll do is put me on a cross and make me the savior of the world. All you will do is put me up there as an emblem and a sign and a token and the power of the lives of people who are eventually going to, to turn your entire Roman world upside down. And by you abusing your power, you're helping me show the world what power is for. It's for serving and for giving away. And so Jesus says, okay, Pilate, this was all God's plan to begin with. You don't scare me. I mean, to me, that's amazing assurance. You know, it's the same thing that, that Job dealt with in the book of Job, right? Where, where God only allowed so much bad stuff into Job's life that actually then accomplished the exact opposite that Satan wanted. And God again says, I'm in control of this. If God gives anyone the power to do something bad to you, your response is to serve, to love, and to follow Jesus because all it will do in the end is to accomplish the very opposite of what the person desires to do. Real power is service. And our job is to follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. Father, I thank you for the challenge of your word. 
There's so much in this passage, in this chapter, God, leading up to the crucifixion of your son. And yet, God, there's assurance that we can read now, looking back, as we read the words of your son, that Jesus really trusted in God. He didn't trust in the situation or even concern himself with the, the dilemma of the hour. He entrusted himself to the maker of earth, the creator, the one who governs all. And I thank you for the challenge of this passage to my heart. And I pray it'll be a challenge to those that are seated here this morning. I do thank you, God, for your sovereignty over all in this world. And we see it so clearly in this passage and what leads up to the cross, your sovereignty in every, every spot, every decision, every comment even made, you, you knew what was gonna happen. And God, I do pray for those that are seated this morning that have no assurance of salvation. They have no peace because they're not trusting in you. And I pray that even through the message this morning or time in your word, that you would convict them, that you would draw them to yourself. May they understand your word. May they believe it. May they trust in you. And God, strengthen us as believers as we leave this place to be faithful in the world. You have left us here. May we be faithful in the proclamation of the truth and use and understand that you're the example for that. May we preach truth. May we do it lovingly and careful. And we do it for your honor and your glory. And now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.